The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in October 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome actor and director James Naughton. We certainly know James's work from musicals like I Love My Wife, City of Angels, for which he won the Tony Award, Chicago, for which he also won a Tony Award as Best Actor in a Musical, also other Broadway shows in which he has appeared, Whose Life Is It Anyway, The Price, which he directed, a revival of Our Town, which he directed, Democracy just uh, four years ago, and currently appearing off-Broadway at the Irish Repertory Theatre here in New York in Ibsen's The Master Builder. Welcome, Jim, to Downstage Center. Thank you, John. It's nice to be here. For people who listen to Broadway music, they hear the name James Naughton, and they instantly think, great musical actor, Tony Award winner, all these musicals. But as we were preparing for this, it came very clear that seeing you in something like Master Builder really should not be a surprise to people. Do you think of yourself as a dramatic actor or a musical actor? Um, Yeah, I do think of myself really more as a dramatic actor. Uh, I've done three musicals in 30 or 40 years of working. Uh, One in the 70s, I love my wife. Uh, In 89, we did City of Angels. In 97, it was Chicago. That kind of adds up to one musical per decade. (laughs) But your batting uh, and, average is good when it comes to the Tonys. Yeah, I, I've been pretty, I've been pretty lucky that way. Um, I would point out that it's coming up on 2009 here, so we're about to run out of this decade. You're due. Yeah, <laughs> maybe or maybe it's run out that string. But no, I do think of myself really as an actor uh, of dramatic works. I spent many, many, many summers at the Williamstown Theater Festival. Uh, in those days, back. In the, I, I worked in Williamstown for the first time in 1972 doing a production of uh, Odette's The Country Girl. And um, I spent just about every summer there in the 80s. I used to basically work as much as I could uh, during the winter to try to make some money so that I could afford to go to Williamstown in the summer. That, that's really true. And I had uh, kids at that time, and uh, my children were in school, and then they were in college during part of that time. But, um, yeah, that was a priority, uh, going to Williamstown. And so I I really think of myself as someone who does primarily American drama, um, Williams, O'Neill, Miller. But uh, I did did a couple of Gorky plays up there, too. So it's not that much of a stretch. And and, uh, The Master Builder was a play that I've always kind of had on my screen. So what was the appeal? Because as you talk about affording, being able to afford to work at Williamstown, certainly Irish Rep is a wonderful company, but it's a small off-Broadway company. I did it for the $370 a week. <laughs> now we know. <laughs> yeah. But what was the lure of, of Master Builder? Well, it was a part that I had always thought about. Uh, I, I mean, I probably haven't read the play or seen it. I've never seen it before. But I, I hadn't uh, read it probably in 30 or 40 years. But it was one of those big, big parts that was out there and that I had always kind of thought about. And I saw this uh, this production announced in the Times in August on, on the, you know, page two of the art section, the footnote section. They were going to do a production of that at the Irish Rep, and I thought, wow. And I went to my bookshelf and pulled down a, a copy of Ibsen, and I, I read it. And it was a kind of a fusty old translation. And uh, I thought, well, I don't know. And my enthusiasm was Im- immediately diminished. 
And a few weeks later, uh, Kieran O'Reilly, one of the co-directors there with Charlotte Moore of the Irish Rep, whom I know but I've never worked with, uh, called me and he said, uh, we're doing this production. I said, yeah, I know you are, as a matter of fact. And he said, well, we have a new translation by Frank McGinnis. And I said, oh. And he said, would you read it? And I said, yeah. So he emailed it to me, and I read it that night. And the next morning, I finished it off, and I called him up, and I said, yeah, I'm interested. Because it was so accessible. And I thought, this play is not um, its not a fusty old um, war horse. It's a very, very modern story. It's very accessible to modern audiences. And um, with Frank McGinnis's translation, I thought, this is the kind of stuff that could really come out of my mouth. So I signed on, and um, about four or five days later, I was in rehearsal. And now it's four to five weeks later, and now we're doing it. And it's uh, it's huge. It's just huge. I mean, it was an enormous part to learn and to work on. Um, but it's uh, I'm just beginning to kind of feel as if I sort of own it. The first four or five performances, I definitely didn't own it. I wasn't even renting it, you know. <laughs> but it's uh, it's it's very exciting. Have you ever done Ibsen before? Any any Ibsen? I don't think so. No, um, I don't think so. My son did a production, a, a very good production of Ghosts down at uh, uh, Baltimore. Greg, you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Uh, down at uh, that Irene Lewis directed mm -hmm. with uh, Pamela Peyton Wright, with whom I have worked, mm -hmm. and and Greg did together about five or ten years ago, and it was a very good production and a very tough play. Um. So I think this is my first Ibsen, except for working on it when I was in school. So now that you've just opened and you've had a chance to get to know Ibsen and the character, other than the sheer amount of memorization you've had to do mm -hmm. to learn your role, what else strikes you about about doing Ibsen, other than just that? Uh, well, you know, I, I guess I should preface this by saying the question is, why are you doing this? <laughs> <laughs> I think that was sort of inherent in, in the question that you asked me, Howard. Uh the last thing I did on stage um, that I acted in was Democracy. And um, that was actually kind of presentational. You know, we we were a bunch of act, ten guys. Uh, I was actually speaking to the audience a good part of the time as Billy Brandt. And um, the nature of the way um, Michael Frayn had put that together was that while you and I were playing this scene, we would ha we'd play a half a page of it, and then it would cut to the other side of the stage, and... So it was really quite technical. And the thing that's fun, if there is something that's fun for actors to do, uh, is to lose ourselves in the world that we are inhabiting. And it was very difficult to, to do that in that kind of a play. It's also difficult to do it in a, in a musical because of the technicality of a musical. You know, you and I are playing a scene, and then 17 seconds from now, I mean, the, audience, the, the orchestra just started, and 17 seconds from now, we all have to be in the same place. So there's not a lot of room there to play with your with your fellow players and they do call us the players you know that is what we enjoy doing and part of the the, the allure uh, is to um, lose yourself to get up there and, and be in the moment and I thought um, the Irish rep is a theater where you could where they do serious work and I've seen stuff there and it's, it's a great little theater it's, and, and they do re really great work and I thought this and this part and this play I might be able to really immerse myself in this character and 
do the thing that I've missed so much that I haven't done in quite a long time that we used to do in Williamstown every summer um, with even less rehearsal there. And uh, so that's why I, that's kind of why I, I wanted to, I hadn't done it in a long time and I thought I better get back up there and see if, see if it's still on that much fun. And how about the physicality of working with Irish Rap? You've not worked there before, I don't think, have you? No, I haven't. Small stage that actually faces two directions. The audience is on two different sides. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how how yeah. is that to work in that sort of a, an atmosphere? Well, it's not too bad. Uh-huh. Um, the chances of someone sleeping in the first row are doubled now because <laughs> we have two first rows. <laughs> and, you know, on Wednesday afternoons we in the theater uh, in New York City, the median age of any off-Broadway house is probably 106. So you do get a chance that they're gonna, you're going to see some people catching a few Z's. As um, long as it's not the people on stage. No, no. <laughs> as long as it's not that, that's true. Uh, yeah. So, that, but that, you know, that's that's part of the deal, and you get used to that. It's it's only having people on two sides. It's not having people on three or four sides. I played those houses too. You commented earlier about that, though. This is an old play. It doesn't. It, it deals with a lot of things that make it seem very modern and without giving anything away for people who over its more than 100-year lifespan, I'll just say there are intimations of child abuse. Mm-hmm. There are certainly affairs, Im- real or implied. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, there's certainly um, a lot of other issues in it. I'm wondering, have you had to make what kind of choices have you made about this character who could be both both the leading man and the leading woman could each be seen as villains depending on how you want to look at the show did he do something untoward to this young woman or is this young woman actually egging him on to his death i i think probably all of the above um the thing that 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 makes it so accessible to modern audiences it's a tale about a guy who has achieved greatness in his field. He's the master builder in this town. And he did it by crawling up and over the backs of a bunch of other people. He's a very, very successful man who's having a relationship with a younger woman. Now, that doesn't sound like something out of uh, several centuries ago, does it? That sounds like right out of yesterday's paper. Um, he may have had an, some sort of a um, an untoward relationship with this young girl when she was only 12 or 13 years old. Um, he is a paranoid. I think that's something that became clear to me in, in the course of rehearsal, in addition to feeling guilty about the things that he actually is responsible for. Uh, he has a very complex relationship with his wife, uh, who's basically turned her back on the world because they have children, uh, they had children whom they lost, uh, tragically. Uh, it's a complicated domestic situation and um that's that's the kind of stuff that actors love to do i mean actors my wife's an msw a master in social work and when she was getting her her master's degree she was reading all these books on human behavior and i and we talked about all this stuff because we are both students of human behavior actors are too and we have the same vocabulary um so, yeah, to play a guy who's this messed up <laughs> in a world that's as complex for him as it is, uh, there's all kinds of stuff for actors to chew on. Now, I, I think that what you said was, did I make any kinds of decisions about this guy? And I did. Um, but I think that my particular bent is to um, not um, make judgments about him, just to try to 
observe what that behavior might be and let the chips fall where they may. Hmm. Um, and I think that's the most interesting way to go. Well, talking about decisions, I'd like to talk to you about your personal decisions of becoming an actor. Uh-huh. You were born in Connecticut. Uh-huh. You grew up there. Uh, your parents were not in the theater, as I understand it. They were teachers. How did you get interested in, in doing theater? Um, that's a good question. Um, I will say that when I was a kid, in uh, in all the organizations that I was in, whether it was uh, elementary school or Cub Scouts, um, there were these plays that we put on, and I was encouraged to do that. Um, maybe it was because the den mother of our little Cub Scout group was a, a, a fan of the theater. So we used to do these things. I remember playing King Arthur at a, at a, as a Cub Scout, you know, I mean, that was pulling the, pulling the sword out of the rock, that kind of thing. Um, I always played sports in, in, as a kid in high school and in college. And um, I, have, I was very fortunate in high school. My baseball coach, when he learned that I was going to be cast or had the opportunity to play the lead in the musical um, in the spring in high school in my junior year, um, made it possible for me to continue to play baseball and sing the lead in uh, South Pacific. A 16-year-old Emil Dubeck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. What was I thinking? Uh, well, it was high school. Yeah. But th- that doesn't happen anymore, you know. And that didn't happen much even then. These days, they make kids who are six or seven or eight years old decide what they're going to do, whether they're going to play only soccer and play in the fall and the spring or only baseball and play in the spring and the fall. And I think that that's really r- ridiculous. That kids don't know where their talents lie at that age. And uh, it... it it cuts off the opportunity for them to explore where their talents may be. Uh, so I was very fortunate, and I think kind of unique. There weren't a lot of guys that had t- people like that, you know, out in front of them um, who made those things happen. But so I always did it as a kid, and um, it wasn't really until my junior year in college. Uh, I was at Brown, and I had been recruited to play soccer and baseball, and I spent the first two years doing that, and then. In November of my junior year in college, I wandered into the theater for the first time, and another guy uh, who was the theater, who was the theater department there, uh, Jim Barnhill, actually, uh, um, he sat me down after I auditioned, and he said, uh, "You know, I think you could do this if you want." And I read out of the blue, and I said, "Do this, not just the show you were auditioning for, no. but do this as a career." Yeah, and, and I, I that's I, a good first audition. Oh yeah, I mean it was. I wanted in there basically just to keep from going to the library and because a girl had told me that they were doing something there that night. And as I was going by the theater that day, I, that evening, I said, yeah, you know, something's going on in there. And I really don't want to go to the library right now. I wandered in there and, and he, he said, okay, who's next? And she literally did this, you know, and pointed to me. I was sitting next to her. He said, come on, get up here and audition. I said, no, no I'm not here to audition. Come on, come on, get up here. So he said, what have you done? I said, well, I haven't done anything. He said, well, you must have done so you're in some shows in, in the summertime or in high school. I said, yeah. He said, okay, well, which ones? So I wrote down the shows I'd done in high school, uh, South Pacific, Carousel, and Annie Get Your Gun. He said, okay, you can sing a song from one of these. I said, I don't have any music. He said, you don't need any music. This guy can play any of these songs. So get up there and sing a song. So I got up and sang a song. He said, all right, now, now here's a scene go look at it for 10 minutes and come back here i did and I, I read it and he says okay come here kid he says take five everybody he says you've obviously you've obviously been on the stage before what are you freshman i said no i'm, I'm a junior he goes a junior where the hell have you been <laughs> and i said i've been playing soccer and baseball he said oh one of those <laughs> he did say that 
And I said, uh-huh. He said, well, I'd like you to be in the show. I said, I can't. We're in the NCAA tournament. It was November. And I couldn't do both. He says, no, you couldn't. Well, when soccer's over, will you come back and see me? So I said, okay. In January, I went back to see him. Basically, I'd forgotten about it, but I, I had to satisfy an arts requirement to graduate, and I thought maybe a, a drama thing might do it because I don't have any talent in the visual arts. So uh, I went back, and I found his office. I knocked on his door, and he took me in. He said, you know, Jim, he sat me down. He said, I think you could do this if you want to do. Hmm. And I said, what do you mean? I said, I sang a song for you and read a two-page scene. He said, yep. And I've been doing this for 35 or 40 years, and I've been a pro in New York, and, you know, I think you could. And I said, well, how do I get there from here? He said, take my class. It's an acting class. meets three hours every afternoon. It's like the, you know, the actor's studio in New York. And when you graduate in a year and a half, you go to Yale Drama School. And I said, just like that? He says, just like that. <laughs> now, he, didn't, he didn't tell me you had to audition to get into Yale Drama School. But the, a year later, I found that out. But anyway, that's what I did. I took his class. I quit playing sports for a year and a half. And uh, a year and a half later, I went to Yale. What, what had you been studying? What had you been considering as a career? Baseball uh, or, or what? You know, I didn't know what I wanted to do. It was the 60s. I didn't, I didn't really want to go in the Army. And that's basically where you, you were going. Uh, you were going to Vietnam. Uh, I, went to, I applied to Brown in, in pre-med. I wound up never taking a, a science course. Some upperclassmen talked me out of that. Um, I was an international relations major for a while until I took an economics course. I love the political science and history, still do, but uh, the economics was just, I, I couldn't stay awake. And uh, I wound up an English major, you know, finally. Hmm. But that guy was a, he, he, I owe him a lot. I owe those three guys, the, the baseball coach in high school, the, the, the drama and musical uh, guy in high school, and this uh, drama teacher at, at Brown in, in college. They really, they really made a lot possible for me. So you were at the Yale School of Drama, sixty-seven to seventy. Yes. What was the experience of of Yale at that time? It was right as the Yale Rep was being formed. It was Brustein campus. We were Brustein's second class. Mm-hmm. Jill Eikenberry and Henry Winkler and I were classmates. Ken Howard was in the class ahead of me. He was in the first class of Brustein. Um, it was a very exciting time to be there. Uh, it was basically the who's who in the American theater came through there. I mean, even the, the Living Theater came back then and made a very big, splashy re-entry into the United States. Um, Judith Molina and Julian Beck. It was very political during that period of time. Because of Vietnam and uh, civil rights, uh, the the Black Panthers and, and Bobby Seale were tried in New Haven in 1970. William Sloan Coffin was the chaplain there. Um, for most of my second year... We basically didn't go to school much during the week because there were political meetings school-wide hmm. just about, you know, four days a week. Uh, so the plays kind of got done, but um, it was a fascinating time. You know, I, I've said to people before, I went to college, uh, an Ivy League college, in 1963 when I went to Brown. And then I went to Yale in 67. I got out in 70. And in those seven years, the whole complexion, the personality of... of the United States, the culture changed during that period of time. Going to school in 63 was like going to school in 53. I mean, there were, you know, there were fraternities on our campus that used to get together and have coffee in little demitasses after dinner, you know, in mm-hmm. 63. Well, that, that wasn't going on four or five years, six years later. Hmm. So it was a, it was a tumultuous time, um, but um, it was a, f- a fascinating period, you know, to, to have lived through and to have been 
at that age and to live through. And, you know, my kids, um, who are now in their 30s, grew up just after that in the 70s and 80s hearing about that. People don't, I think, understand quite what what it was um, culturally for us who lived through it, but there was a lot of hope. People try to uh, talk about flower power and all that sort of stuff and and uh, liken it to body piercing, <laughs> hmm. you know, which is what seems to be uh, going on among young people for the last five or ten years. Um, and it's not that's that wasn't it, <laughs> you know. Anyway, it was it was a fascinating period to be um, in in the arts and in the theater where um, we gave expression to a lot of that sort of stuff. You got out of school and stayed at Yale for a season. You did a season at the Rep, is that right? Yes, that's right. My first job was at the Rep, and I worked there from uh, June. We went, Mike, my first job was at uh, Guild Hall out in East Hampton. We, we took the summer of 70 and went out and spent the summer there and did four um, sort of story theater original pieces uh, for the summer out there. It was a glorious summer to be, a great way to start and a, a delightful time. And then we came back to the rep that uh, fall and uh, did one of those, uh, Olympian Games it was called. And then we did uh, uh, where Tar- uh, Terrence McNally's Where Has Tommy Flowers Gone? We did um, a really fractured production, of not a very good production at all, of uh, the Scottish play. Um Although every time I say I was in the worst production of the Scottish play, everybody, everybody every says, action, no, no, I was, I was in the worst production. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why it's a cursed play. Yeah, yeah. But you really landed the following year when you came in to New York and off-Broadway did Long Day's Journey and Tonight with an extraordinary cast. Tell, yeah. tell us about that production, which for any young actor making their mark must have been quite something. It was sort of like starting at the top of the world. Um we, I closed the, 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 that very, very unhappy production of Macbeth on uh, Saturday night, and Monday went to rehearsal, went into rehearsal in New York um, for the first time with Robert Ryan, Geraldine Fitzgerald, and Stacey Keach, and Patty Croft uh, in Arvin Brown's production of Long Day's Journey and Tonight. And we did it at the Promenade Theater. Um, it was... In every way, the most wonderful, you know, working experience, artistically and personally, because those all the, all those people were just really great people and remained great friends, you know, as long as they lived. In in two of those cases, Stacy and Arvin and Patty and I are still here. Um, that was it was a total delight hmm. and a great way to make a New York debut. All the shows you're mentioning are, are, are dramas primarily as opposed to musicals. And fast-forwarding several years to 1977, I Love My Wife, Cy Coleman and Michael Stewart's musical. Was that against character for you? You had been doing basically plays. Now suddenly, how did you find yourself in a musical? Well, I sang, but nobody really knew it. Uh-huh. And uh, I auditioned, <laughs> and I, I got the job. And then I, Cy became a, a, a lifelong friend. Uh, I did City of Angels with him 12, 13 years later. And um, we've done a, we did an awful lot together over the years. He and I both spent a lot of time doing um, gala benefits up at the Hole in the Wall Gang Camp, the camp that Paul Newman started for kids with life-threatening illnesses. 
And so we probably performed together 15 or 20 times at, at those sorts of things. And it tributes to Cy Coleman at the Friars Club that I got to uh, perform at this uh, in a show with Joe Williams and uh, George Shearing and Gwen Verdon. Uh, that was a, that was a total delight, um, and George Shearing became a friend and became a, a mentor, really, in a way. Uh, the concerts that I've been doing since then, which I finally got around to putting together in 1999, were largely because George, uh, having met me at one of those tributes to Cy at the Friars Club, encouraged me and called me up and says, come over to the house, and sat down at the piano and said, this would be a good song for you, and this would be a good song for you, and then sent me a 90-minute tape with him just playing and singing and saying, oh, Jim, I thought of another song mm-hmm. that you know, it would be good for you to do. And so I, uh, I've been very, very fortunate working with people um, who were out there way out in front of me a generation or two ahead. Uh, guys like John Cromwell and Ruth Nelson. Ruth Nelson was a member of the group theater. Her, she was married to John Cromwell, Jamie Cromwell's uh, father. Uh, John had been a director in the golden age of Hollywood and wound up acting at the age of 87 in a David Story world premiere of The Contractor, which we did at Long Wharf. Also in that production was uh, Teresa Wright, uh, the, the wonderful, the, the, the lovely Teresa Wright, and a whole bunch of other wonderful actors, people like John Cazale, um, Bill Swetland, who was a longtime uh, company member at Long Wharf and would come in occasionally and do a play in New York. So having those guys out in front was really meaningful to me, uh, to, pe- to work with people like Robert Ryan. My second play in New York was directed by Jose Ferrer, and uh, that was a, long t- a long-term relationship. Uh, five or ten years later, that play didn't work out very well. It was called The Web and the Rock, and we didn't last very long. He directed it, and, and uh, I, uh, about six or seven years later, I got a phone call out of the blue, and it's, Hey, Jim, it's Joe. It was Joe Ferrer. Uh, yeah, well, the last one didn't work out very well, but I got a two-hander that I'm going to do, and I thought maybe you could do it with me. And I figured I owed you one, you know. <laughs> so that, that's kind of nice. So what was that, Joe? Uh, I didn't do it. I, <laughs> oh. I couldn't do it with him. I was not available. Uh, he, it was a two-hander. He was playing a, a famous older person, and there was a young person who was supposedly going to interview him, hmm. a journalist, and that's the part he wanted me to play. Tell us a little bit about working with Cy Coleman, both on I Love My Wife, then a decade or more later on City of Angels, creating an actual brand new musical, not a revival, a brand new musical that you were cast as one of the, the leads of. How was it working on creating a musical, and what was what was Coleman like? Cy uh, uh, was great. I mean, he's, you know, he was a phenom. He, he, he was a pianist who um, performed at the age of seven at Carnegie Hall. Well, he, he was playing classical piano yeah, early was, on. Yeah. He could do anything. Yeah, yeah. And and he was really one of the last of the great Tin Pan Alley composers. I used to kid and just say, you know, you could see Cy Coleman walking down the street and you could actually see tunes coming out of his ears <laughs> uh, because he had the head of a, of a real musician. Um, he could play anything, which was amazing because he had these kind of stubby little fingers and hands, you know. <laughs> you know? But he had great, great talent. Uh well, you know, the, I guess the classic line about taking a, bringing a musical into New York is that if Hitler hadn't died in the bunker, probably the only fitting sentence for him would have been to set, take him, send him out of town with a musical. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I Love My Wife was uh, a complicated, it was complicated getting that into town because Joe Layton uh, had been the director-choreographer uh, who cast us 
Lenny Baker, Eileen Graff, Joanna Gleason, and me, uh, the four people in that show, two couples. And uh, 10 days into rehearsal, he got injured very badly, fell off of a loft uh, downtown. And one day we showed up to rehearsal at 10 o'clock in the morning. We didn't have a director. So we hung around for a couple of hours. And meanwhile, Cy and Michael Stewart, uh, who knew everybody in the business, started making phone calls. <laughs> in fact, I was sitting next to Cy while Cy was calling uh, the guy who became our director, Gene Sachs. Gene was at that time living in L.A. He was married to B. Arthur. You remember B. Arthur from Maud. Um, B. had a voice maybe a little deeper than mine. <laughs> and uh, Cy called uh, Gene. It was probably about 10 o'clock in the morning, 7 o'clock out there. And the, and the conversation went sort of like this. Hi, uh, hi uh, Gene, this is Cy Coleman calling. Uh, oh, oh. Oh, hi, B. <laughs> Is Gene there? I, I witnessed that one. Uh, Cy, was delight- Cy was delightful. He, he was a, a wonderful guy, and um, he was very tough on musicians. Uh, I mean, we had one of the greatest orchestras, one of the greatest bands for City of Angels that's ever been assembled in New York. And all the great musicians wanted to play in that in that pit. So, we, you know, we had the best of the best. And... Uh, Sai was relentless, making sure that they got it right. Uh, they told me that, uh, hmm. um, but they sure—they all wanted to be in, in that band, and it, it's great now because you st- I still run into these guys all over the place. And uh, in fact, one of them, the drummer Dave Radicek, uh is playing for me this uh, Saturday night. We're doing a concert up in Hartford, hmm. so it's nice when you have those kind of relationships that last a long time. I love my wife. In the mid seventies, was a hit. It was an unqualified hit a small show uh but really charming great success it's not a show we see nowadays and i'm wondering how much when you look back on it was it totally a product of its era is it a show we could see again because it dealt with with sexual mores Wife in the seven days 70s i wasn't <laughs> shying away i just thought i'd use the word mores for yeah, a change yeah uh, it's about these two couples in the 70s, uh, square, real, a couple of real square guys from uh, Trenton, New Jersey, who uh, are trying to get with it and be hip. And uh, they decide that they're going to try to smoke a little reefer and maybe uh, see if they can do a little wife swapping. And it's called I Love My Wife, and they kind of can't make it happen. But it was fun, and it was funny. And it was meant to be, uh, you know, a fantasy it sure is different. Um, it's only 30 years ago, but boy, oh boy, has the pendulum swung back in the opposite direction. And not that I'm recommending or, or advocating wife swapping, but uh, it was meant to be kind of a, a gag. And I'm not sure that we have the kind of sense of humor today that we had then, which is kind of too bad. I've, I've volunteered a couple of times to do this song called Everybody Today is Turning On, which is the sort of a Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire number that Lenny Baker and I did together. A little soft shoe number. The uh, the lyric goes something like, Hey, remember when high was up, when kicks were tame, when amyl nitrate was some guy's name? <laughs> uh, yeah, and so on. And I've, I've volunteered a couple of times to do that song for the Republican National Convention, but they haven't taken me up on it so far. <laughs> a couple of years after uh, I Love My Wife, you were back up at Long Wharf, and I ask about this only because it's a show I couldn't get a ticket to. 
but you did Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Yeah. The cast where you were Nick, yeah. uh, Swoosie Kurtz was Honey, and Mike Nichols and Elaine May were George and Martha. Yeah. What was the experience of working with the, you know, Nichols, they were both writers, directors, noted comedians in that piece? Um, oh, it was fascinating. I was actually, uh, I'd worked with Mike once before. He directed a production of uh, the only play that E.L. Doctorow has written called Drinks Before Dinner that we did down at the Public Theater in 1978, I think. Uh, Chris Plummer, Zora Lampert, Barbara Etta Young, the late, wonderful Virginia uh, Vestoff, Charlie Kimbrough, um, Maria Tucci, and I, and uh, uh, and the great Joe Summer. And so this was maybe two years later, and I was in a pro- I was in rehearsal for a production of Whose Life Is It Anyway that was going to be done and that came to Broadway with Mary Tyler Moore in the Tom Conti role where they reversed the genders and she played the, the patient in the bed and I played the, uh, I think it was the Gene Smart role. Gene Marsh. Gene Marsh role, right. Um, and we were in rehearsal when Mike called and said, we're going to do this production of Virginia Woolf. Elaine and I have been talking about doing this thing for 30 years together, and we're going to do it. And wondered if you'd like to play Nick. So I went to Mary, and I told her. I said, uh, you know, uh, this is a conflict, but she said, you have to do that. She was so generous and a sweet lady. And um, so I played the, I opened the show. I opened uh, Whose Life Is It Anyway? And um, I actually, on opening day, on the, on the day of opening night, I went into our producer, Manny Eisenberg's office, and and handed him my, wrote out on his desk my, what is it, two-week or four-week notice and gave, gave him notice and said, I'm, he says, you know, you're not going to make any money doing this up in Long Wharf. I got, I know, Manny, I'm not doing it for the money because I know you're not. Well, good luck. And then we went up there to do it, and Mary rented a van and got the entire cast of our show uh to, and and they drove up to New Haven. They wanted to see the show on a Sunday when they huh. weren't per- performing. Wasn't that something? Uh-huh. Talk, talk about a generous spirit. That was a terrific experience. Uh, being on stage with Elaine May is one of the one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. You know, we didn't, we never actually rehearsed the third act before we had to start performing it. It just it was a slow it was slow going, and we kind of didn't get there. So we we were performing at night. And rehearsing by day, trying to finish off the rehearsal process. And as a result, Elaine didn't really, she hadn't ever had a chance to rehearse the third act. And it starts off with about a three, two or three or four page monologue that she has, that, that, that Martha has, with Nick on stage, me. And uh, she didn't know what the words were. She hadn't memorized it yet, but she knew what, she knew the gist of it. And being on stage with Elaine, just, you know, making it up. I mean, she wasn't. She was. She was getting all the information out, and in in a course of about two or three days, she got all the lines learned. Mister Albee is pretty precise usually about his words. Well, it, <laughs> it wasn't. You know, this is just. This is what the process was. Mm-hmm. The process was very slow, and uh, so we just didn't get a chance to rehearse it much un- until we were up and doing it. It's, it's unusual, but it happens. And uh, but I have to tell you, and the point of, the, of what I'm trying to say here is that. I was, in spite of the fact that we hadn't rehearsed it, and in spite of the fact that she didn't hadn't had a chance to to learn it, I have never felt so confident being on the stage with anybody in my life. Hmm. You know, she, you could, she knew what she was doing. In fact, one night, 
um, I, I mentioned to you being in the moment and just playing with the other people. One night, I went after Mike on the stage. I mean, I went after him. I got up and I went across the stage. I was, and Elaine was off the couch like a shot. There was no <laughs> way she was going to let me get to him. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean. I mean, we hadn't ever rehearsed this. I'd never thought about well, it. They come doing out of such an improv background, the Second City and all of that. Yeah, exactly. And. And I guess I just trusted enough that if I did something ridiculous like that, she wouldn't let me get there so that we, you know, we wouldn't have to deal with that. But it was right for the moment. I'll tell you a funny story. I had this line uh, in the play where Mike and I are having a scene together, and uh, I had a line, and the line was, I wish you wouldn't talk to my wife that way. Now, I've always been a, a big fan of Elmer Fudd, uh, and I... I said to him, boy, i got to be really careful never to insert the word really, try to insert the word really into this sentence because it just isn't going to work. And sure enough, one day in one night in performance, I actually look, I drew myself up. I looked at Mike and I said, I really wish you wouldn't talk to my wife that way. <laughs> 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 well, he started to laugh. And I don't know if you've ever seen Mike Nichols laugh. But when he laughs, and he gets, he turns purple, and he he turned purple, and we laughed for about thirty seconds, the two of us, and then we continued. <laughs> well, from that, looking to the next decade, your your credits seem to be pretty much Williamstown, and I presume, as you said earlier, you were off uh, in the winter making money so you could work in the summer at Williamstown. Mm-hmm. What was the attraction of working at Williamstown all those summers? Wow, uh, doing. Um, Working in, working on Tennessee Williams plays with a bunch of wonderful actors, with people like Blythe Danner and Maria Tucci, and uh, and with Nico Sakharopoulos. He was the uh, founder of Williamstown. He founded the theater in 1954. He was a teacher at Yale while I was there. He was a, a an eccentric, a very gifted uh, Greek man, who had, whose accent I think got thicker and thicker the older he got. Um, but he, uh, he, he became a, a mentor to a lot of us and he was to me, I, I loved working with him. He'd say things, he would say things like, uh, this, you'd be working and he'd go, no, Jimmy, no, it's not this. It's not this and this in that. It's not this. It's this and that and this. And I go, hold a second. What you're saying is it's not this and this and that. It, and it's, but it's this and that. And he'd laugh, and he'd go, no, what I mean is, it's not this and this, it's this and that. I said, oh, okay, so you mean, don't romance it, you know, be, and he'd say, yeah, exactly. Um, if you learned how to, if, if you had to figure out how to translate what he was saying, but he was always invariably um, right and bright. And it was a place to go and, and take my family for the summer, and we would all be up up there in the lovely town of, of Williamstown, renting some house someplace. The kids would be in tennis camp. We'd be together with uh, a family, Nikos's family of of actors. He knew how to create a company. And, um, yeah, it was glorious. It was a great way for us all to spend summers together. Then you would do film and television work in the, in the other parts of the year? So, Hopefully, yeah, 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 so that you could afford yeah. to go up there. I mean, that's kind of the way it worked out, I guess. That's That was the plan, or at least that's that's what I was trying to do every year. Yeah, that's right. Then City of Angels came along in 89, so you were back on Broadway after many, many years. Uh, actually, the way I got that job, I was in Williamstown that summer, and I got a call to go down in, uh, to New York and audition. It wasn't easy to get to New York. I used to drive over the mountain, r- over Route 2 to Albany, and get on the train and take the train to New York and then take the subway to the... 
And it was a long process. I, I schlepped all the way in. I got to the theater. I auditioned. I got back in the subway. I got back in a cab. I got back on the train. I got back in the car. I drove over the mountain. I got back to my house in Williamstown that night. It was dark. I drove in the driveway, and my wife came out the door. She said, hey, they just called. You got the job. <laughs> well, that never happens. You don't get the job the same day. But it was a, a, th- a thorough delight, and it was the first time uh, of two that I've worked with Michael Blakemore. And uh, the second of two that I, well, the second of many that I, when I worked with Cy. And you're probably glad there wasn't a callback. You had to go back over the mountain and <laughs> yeah. on the train and in the oh, subway yeah. and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> true. That's true. <laughs> Let's skip right ahead to uh, Chicago. And I don't want to go back after that and talk about your directing, but uh, talk about Chicago, which really you started at uh, at Encores at City Center when they did that five-performance revival. And sure then, did. Uh, Barry and Fran Weisler decided, hey, this might work on Broadway. And here it is, uh, you know, 12 years later, and it's still working on Broadway. But you were Billy Flynn. Yeah. Uh, isn't it amazing? You know that that show when we did that uh, at uh, City Center, it just took off. I mean, it was—I've never heard a sound like it. The audience roared. I mean, roared a- after every single number. I remember it. I was there that first night, oh, that Thursday night. Wasn't it exciting? It was terrific. Absolutely. I was standing backstage waiting to go on, and they they roared after the first number, and then they kept roaring after each one. I couldn't believe it. But you know what I thought at the time? I think, and I think it was right. In retrospect, I thought people are dying to see just naked performing. Not quite naked. I don't mean naked. But I mean, <laughs> but that know, works. But, but <laughs> perform. But, but basic, right in your face performing. You know, we'd had so many years of, of gimmicks and, and um, chandeliers and helicopters and stuff like that. And you can't, all of a sudden, you saw a bunch of very, very talented actors, singer, dancers doing this thing without all the other stuff. And, uh, boy, I, I could... The audiences were just... Uh, they were desperate for it. They were so hungry for it. Well, it was basically just the band on stage yeah. and the actors who never really left the stage and not a lot of props, not a lot of costumes, no. just basic performance. Yeah. Yeah, it was wonderful. Yeah. And uh, and what was amazing was that everybody thought, boy, this, this is popular. This could, ought to go to Broadway. And the Weisslers were the only ones... Who would pick it up? Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. Uh, the other uh, really, really exciting thing is that I invested in it. <laughs> Good call. Good for you. Yeah, I did. And so I'm still getting paid. Uh, and that doesn't happen very often. But, um, yeah, that was a, that was a, that was a, but I, I mean, I had the advantage of having seen and heard the reaction from those five days. I'll tell you a funny story. You know, when the Clintons came to see it, uh, uh, the president was in the house, and uh, I'm standing backstage getting ready to make my entrance, and the girls are lying on the deck, you know, and they're going, We want Billy. <laughs> Give us Billy. Well, the audience kind of starts to titter, you know, and then they start to laugh, and then they started to applaud, and then they started to roar. And later, I went out to dinner with them after the show, and he said to me, Jimmy, he says, you know, when those girls started saying, We want Billy, he said... Hillary had to grab me to keep me from storming the stage. <laughs> and he said, God help me. He said, I don't know what I would have done when I got there. He says, but I was going to the stage. And I looked at her and she said, yep. She, she, he had his hands on the on the armrests and he was about to go. And, and she reached over and she grabbed me. She said, no, don't do it. <laughs> That's funny. Well, either Barry or friend, one of them told us, I think it was Barry, said that uh, he felt the timing was right because of the O.J. Simpson case having been so in the headlines and here was kind of 
a similar type of a story. Maybe. And that when he went to Kandra and Ebb, nobody else had called him. Yeah. And he said, oh, yeah, go, go, go for it. Yeah. Know? Well, maybe. Uh, I, I'm sure that didn't hurt it, but I think it... I, I mean, I think even if O.J. hadn't happened, I think that show would still have been very, very successful. It still is very successful. It's interesting that the revival has been far more successful than the original in 1975, which had a nice run, but it was up against the chorus line yeah. and uh, only ran for a year or two in, in those days. And here the revival is still running decades, uh, well, a decade or more later. Yeah, and it's still really good, too. You know, I, I saw it recently, and boy, you know, th- th- those dancers are so, they're so wonderful. I'd never worked with dancers before. In fact, I was about the only person in the... I think I was the only person, maybe besides Marsha Lewis, but maybe she is actually a dancer besides me. Uh, I think I was the only one who wasn't a dancer. And, uh, boy, did I love working with them. What a great fraternity of disciplined, wonderful people. I mean, there were were women in that company who had families, who were children. They were getting up at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning to do a complete bar exercise at home before they wake up their kids to to take them to school. Uh, a funny story is that when I left that show, the newspaper said uh, James Naughton hands off his dancing shoes to so and so this, you know, after this performance this week. And Jimmy Borstelman, who was our lead dancer in that company, cut that thing out. And he came in and said, "Naughton, what are you kidding me? You don't have any dancing shoes." <laughs> Do they think you have dancing shoes? And, of course, Anne Reinking and B.B. Newworth, both from the City Center version, transferring with you to the yeah. Broadway version. Yeah. So. A, a wonderful company. So when you go back to see it now, you sit in the audience watching somebody else be Billy Flynn. Do you see it differently sitting in the audience than you did when you were performing the role yourself? Uh, I don't know. I actually don't go back and see something like that. But we uh, we all went back uh, for the, I think, the 10-year anniversary a couple of years ago. Oh, that was wonderful. And we all got, and I, I got a chance to go back on the stage, and they put everybody else up there. You'd, have, you'd see like 10 different Billy Flynn's, mm-hmm. um, 10 different Roxy's. It was a lot of fun to, to be with the original company again. We had an awfully good time together. As we talk about you as dramatic actor, as musical actor, I don't want to give short shrift to the fact that you've really carved out a career for yourself as a director. And that, I believe, began again at Williamstown. Yes, it did. Was that a desire of yours, or was it someone said, why don't you try it? I thought I always thought someday maybe. Um, you know, Nikos died much too young. He he was just not quite sixty years old when he died in nineteen in February of nineteen eighty nine, and that was a crushing blow to a lot of us because we really loved him. I I thought I'd I bought a house up there and I I thought I'd spend the rest of my life summers you know working up there and with him as he grew older. And he and I talked about my directing at that point. It took about another four or five or six years before I actually got around to doing it. But, uh, you know, until you do it, you really don't know. I mean, I didn't do it in college. I didn't do it at the drama school. And I remember saying to my wife, well, I don't know if I'm going to be, A, bored sitting in the chair instead of being on, you know, up on my feet in rehearsal. I don't know if I'll have anything illuminating to say to the actors. I sure hope I will. I sure hope I'm not one of those actor-directors who has to be reduced to showing the actor, you know, what I want him to do instead of being able to, to talk to him about it. Uh, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I got there on the first day. I'm sitting in the chair and we're doing the, the rehearsal starts and all of a sudden the stage manager comes over and says, uh, Jim, you have to give him uh, a 10-minute break. I went, oh, okay. All right, everybody take 10. And then a little while later, hey, Jim, you have to give him another 10. Oh, okay. And then the next thing I knew was, uh, Jim, that's the day. It's 6 o'clock. It's over. What? Wow. 
went by like that. So I guess I was not I was not bored sitting in the chair, and I really do love directing. And um, I wish I I mean I that's probably what I'll I should be doing much much more of that. I loved working on uh, the first thing I did was Filomena, uh, which was the uh, Eduardo Di Filippo play that a marriage Italian style was based on that Maria Tucci had done a translation of, and then she played the part. I loved the conversations with the designers trying to figure out how to put that thing together. Um, the price, Arthur Miller's The Price, which was a play that uh, people really just didn't think it was as good, one of his best plays. And maybe that's because the first production of it uh, when it came to New York was not highly, very highly praised. Robert Whitehead, who was the greatest, I think, you know, theatrical producer that New York's ever seen of straight plays. And if you look at his resume, it's he did every great play that was done in America. I mean, I, if, if I was born too late, that's one of the reasons that I didn't get a chance to work with him. But he said to me after he saw our production of The Price, and he had produced the original, and he says, Jimmy, he says, you got the, you got the end of this play. He said, we never got it, hmm. which I thought was pretty magnanimous of him to say. Um, but that play was, uh, uh, I, I mean, I just, I, that's exactly what I want to do for the rest of my life. If I could work on material like that with guys like Jeff DeMunn and, and, um, Bob Dishy and Elizabeth McKay and, um, Harris Eulin. Harris Eulin, yeah. yeah. But was Miller around for your production? I mean, this was, we up. should say, it was the third Broadway <clears throat> revival. And it, in fact, only been revived on Broadway about seven years earlier by the it, time you did it. But, yeah, yeah. But, so what, what What was Arthur Miller saying to you, James Naughton, relative neophyte director? Well, you know, uh, I didn't call him, and I didn't ask him. We just put it up. Mm-hmm. And he came and he saw it. And uh, he liked it a lot. Uh, although someone has told me that, you know, he, I don't think he ever saw a production of his that he didn't like. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. But uh, but after uh, he saw it, we we talked about it then, and um, it was delightful to have you know that kind of response from him. Uh, he became a huge champion of the of the production. We've talked about several artistic homes for you: the early days at Yale and uh, at Long Wharf, and certainly Williamstown. The Westport Country Playhouse has become another for you. And in 2002, you had a unique opportunity, which was to direct Paul Newman in his return to the stage, and what sadly was was the final stage uh, appearance that he made. Yeah. Tell us about our town. Um. I'm probably the only actor in America who was who had never been in a production of Our Town, <laughs> I, and I also had, had never seen a production of it. Uh, when I, when we were when it was up and we were doing it at the booth um, on Broadway, a, a fellow came back afterwards. Uh, I was standing out in the back, the way directors you know can do, out behind the audience watching the show, and a guy came up to me after Mr. Naughton. He said, uh, I, "This was a wonderful production." I said, "Thank you very much." He said, you know, I've seen probably a dozen productions of this play. And I said, really? He said, yes. He said, and it's the first time I've ever seen a production with adults. Because, <laughs> of course, it's always done in high schools, you know. He says, and it, it works very well with adults. <laughs> I said, yeah, well, that's kind of what he intended. Uh, Joanne called me up one night, and she said, you know how I've always wanted to do a production of Our Town? 
And I said yes, because she had talked about that. And this is Joanne Woodward, who at the time was the artistic director at Westport. Yes, and um, and who was, was a very close friend, because I became friendly with Joanne and Paul when she and I did a production of uh, The Glass Menagerie at Williamstown, directed by Nikos. And then we did it again at the Long Wharf, and on our closing night at Long Wharf, I came into the dressing room and she said, we're going to make the movie and Paul's going to direct it. You want to be in it? (laughs) I said, well, uh, okay. Um, Karen Allen did uh, Laura in all three of those productions and uh, two of those in the movie. And um, we had three different times. We had uh, John Sayles, the movie maker in Williamstown, Treat Williams at Long Wharf, and then Malkovich did it uh, in the movie. So uh, Joanne called me up and she says, you know, I've always wanted to do a production of Our Town. And after 9-11, I think it would be a perfect time for us to do that play. And Paul wants to do the stage manager. And we were wondering if you'd like to direct it. And I said, oh, my gosh, (laughs) you know. Well, yeah. (laughs) Actually, I said, what I said to her is, well, let me read it, and I'll call you back. (laughs) So I read it, and um, I called her back the next day, and I said, well, sure. And um, so we did it up at up at Westport, and I tried to cast it as much as I could f- out of our town up there, our t- Westport town. We got a lot of wonderful actors up there, and I cast uh, these terrific actors: um, uh, Jane Atkinson, who lived there, and Frank Converse, who lived there, and uh, Steve Mandillo, who lived down the road in Milford, Connecticut, and Jane Curtin, who lived up in uh, Washington, uh, up in uh, Litchfield County. And um, my friend Jeff DeMunn, who had been in The Price, uh, who had worked quite a lot in Westport, and, you know, the rest of the townspeople and the kids and a whole bunch of other wonderful actors. And, and of course, Paul was the stage manager. And he had said to me for 20 years that he would never work on the stage again. I'd asked him, you know, I'd say, come on, let's do this, let's do that. This took me totally by surprise. I mean, every time I'd say that, he'd go, oh, no, he says, no. Can't do that. Why not? I can't. I won't be able to memorize anything. What do you mean? Oh no, my brain—it's all foam. He'd say, <laughs> you know. Well, he—he he did what I think is the hardest job, which is to go out there by yourself and do all these monologues. But somehow he thought that that was easier than playing scenes with other actors. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. And he was wonderful. And then we did it. We did it for television, and we shot it for uh, a co-production between Showtime and Masterpiece Theater. And, um, you know, usually they bring in some director to to do that, and they shoot basically a live performance, and then they shoot a couple of extra little scenes. And I thought that would be a terrible way to do that show. Those things never work on TV because what you're shooting is a live performance, so you're getting actors who are trying to blast away to the back row, but you got this camera in their face. So I said, I I think we should do it for the camera, shoot it and use the technique that the camera can can bring to it so i think they were gonna they, i know they were gonna hire somebody else and paul basically said to them well i think if jimmy doesn't do this i don't think the company will want to do it so so they said oh well okay so anyway that's how i got to direct the thing and we did do it that way we made a, a sound stage out of the booth theater after we closed we took out the first 10 rows we built the whole thing out i called up uh a wonderful guy, Phil Abraham, who was the uh, director of photography for The Sopranos. And I said, you want to shoot this thing with me? And he said, yeah. 
and uh, Tony Walton, who had done the set and costumes for The Glass Menagerie. I said, you want to do this, uh, the sets and costumes for uh, Paul's return to the stage? And he said, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so we, we did it. And, I, I, gosh, I, it, it works so well on television because he's not talking to the back of the audience. He's talking to the camera. And so when you're sitting on your couch watching this thing in your, TV, in your living room, he's talking to you. And his performance is just brilliant on, you know, in the TV version. Well, very different medium, so I think it was probably very wise to restage it because otherwise it's such an intimate meeting in television as opposed to... Well, I agree. I agree. I don't know why people don't do it that way. Uh, anyway, somebody told me, well, that's this will be the standard after this. This will be the way to do that. And I hope it is because I think it makes so much more sense. And I'd sure like to do a lot more of them that way. Just before we wrap up, I have to ask, we've talked several times about your three musicals on Broadway this summer, again at Westport. You directed your first musical, mm-hmm. a review of uh, Cole Porter's songs, Hot and Cole. Yeah. What was it like directing a musical? Uh, more more bells and whistles. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Um, if you like to direct, and if you have some experience in our musical in any way, um, then doing something like that can be a blast. Uh, I loved doing it, and I hope that I'll do it some more. Um, there are some people, some producers, who said to me, "You know, you should be directing musicals. What do you want to do?" So maybe down the road, I'll get a, I'll get a crack at that. Well, you're currently starring in the Master Builder, the Ibsen uh, play at the Irish Rep here in New York. You, an actor, a director. What do you want to do next? Any ideas? Any thoughts? Um, I'd like to go to Florida as soon as this is over and play golf for about a week <laughs> and rest my voice. Um, but I'm having a wonderful time. I mean, the reason I, as I mentioned to you before, I, I wanted to get with a bunch of other really good actors and and lose myself in the in the play, and that's what's going on. And it's a big play. I mean, it's just an enormous um, effort, and I'm playing with some wonderful people. Uh, the, the young lady who plays Hilda, Charlotte Perry, is really terrific. Kristen Griffith, who plays my wife. And they're, they're all terrific. Doug Stender and uh, Herb Foster and Daniel Lang. It's really great. And Letitia Lang. Um, and Kieran, uh, the directors. So I'm having a ball. Great. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Delightful to be here. It was fun. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, Jim. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.